We lost a friend this past week, Michelle Pulick. Even if you are not familiar with her name, you are most likely aware of her work. Michelle was a set decorator, you see, with a multitude of credits that include NCIS Los Angeles, The Shield, and countless others. Specifically, and most notably earlier in her career, a lot of horror movies, which you'll hear in a little bit, just how fond she was of those. Her work dates back to the 1990s and includes a personal favorite of mine, Hard Target, with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Seriously, I love films like this. This 1993 John Woo classic featured an amazing Van Damme mullet, equally amazing stunts, super witty banner, like the tagline for the movie, don't hurt what you can't kill, and an authentic backdrop like New Orleans. From that, an incredibly talented set decorator like Pulik can use and did use her skills to bring out the characters. She had New Orleans set as a backdrop for the project and made the city a co-star with grit, history, and every set had proper and balanced authenticity. That's a gift. And that was one of Michelle's superpowers, her ability to craft an environment around her characters and the script, not only making it authentic, but deepening the characters within and around the acting itself. Michelle was Emmy nominated as part of the outstanding art direction for a miniseries or movie for her work on From Earth to the Moon in 1998. Michelle Pulick was the set decorator on NCIS Los Angeles for 225 episodes from 2009 to 2021. That's an incredible run on one show, not only extremely unique, but if you've watched that show, your perception of that environment was crafted in part by Michelle Pollock. So that's the work. I also wanted to give you the chance to hear from Michelle one last time in her own words. Following her segments from Michelle's appearance on Convo by Design, episode 58 of Convo by Design, to be exact, which originally aired in 2016. Oh, I have been a set decorator for about 25 years. I uh, was working as a designer for Ford and drawing up car parts from Blueprints hated it. So I decided to go back to school because I was going to do these... Uh, they're actually manuals. I was doing manuals for a job shop for Ford and GM. Back to school, took a uh, class and was in class, and I stole somebody's purse. She looked just like mine. I took her purse, and she came chasing me down and saying, Lady, you have my purse. And she was working on a film, uh, a, a Sam Raimi movie, and she wanted to know if... I was interested in helping out, and that's how it I kind of fell into it. I ended up having my own production company called Sparkle Films. We did a 30-minute uh, film to showcase what two... It, Sparkle Films was an all-girl production company, and we, we did a 30-minute film to showcase what we could do, which is... Um, was a film. It was subtitled in English. It was all in Lithuanian about... Uh, period, because that's a thing that we need to do. Period was singing, dancing, and drama. And uh, we took it around to film uh, film festivals around the country. We won a couple of awards. 
And then we started our own company, which was a television company. It was an all-girl company, at, and we did tri I'm from Detroit, Michigan, and we did a tri-state area, $50,000 budgets or less. And well, that's kind of how I started, actually. And then when I was in Detroit, films would come through town, and they were always looking for people to work on, and I ended up working as an uh, assistant set decorator on uh, Rosemary Murders a long time ago, and uh, and that's how I kind of I fell into it. Yeah. And so, where where else have we seen your work? Well, I did one of my uh, I did uh, a movie, Hard Target, was which is John Woo's first feature film in the United States, and I did a series for HBO called From Earth to the Moon about the space shuttle missions, which is fabulous. And but I but my genre where I really started the very beginnings were uh, horror films. I did Strikers War, and then I did uh, Army of Darkness, which was a popular Sam Raimi movie, cult film. Michelle was asked about the joy in her work. Oh, the best part is when you're on location or when you're trying to find different parts. You actually have to go outside of the prop houses and outside and talk to to actual people from all kinds of walks of life and uh, you just meet these you you know you're digging for a special certain something and you dig deep and you find people that are you know that have a collection of uh, you know uh, shoehorns you know and or walking sticks which I don't necessarily need but or chairs and uh, you get you meet these different people other than always with a prop house, and that's my favorite part. And what about the challenges? Oh, uh, budgets are are difficult. Staying on budget, uh, which I do well actually. Um, I have a fantastic lead man, Michael Zufelt, and we we're always on on budget. But it's it's. It's like, uh, you know, those whirling dishes or whirling, it's, you're always, it's like a roller coaster. You're always, oh my God. When asked what she would be doing, were she not a set decorator? This was her response. I would be a landscape designer. I would be working in the garden. I would have butterflies and hummingbirds everywhere. And I would uh, have a more tranquil life because this life, you're when you're on, you're always right on. You're on the edge. And then you're off for a while. And then you're on again. It's kind of it's a roller. Not, once again, a roller coaster kind of a situation. Yeah, that's it. And finally, what were some of the most unique and different sets she decorated? Well, mm, well, I, uh, an army of darkness, I did a period uh, blacksmith shop, which I loved. It was very uh, strange. And then on um, from Earth to the Moon, we did uh, sets about the Apollo missions that were actually act so accurate, and our uh, tech advisors were real astronauts. So I wouldn't call it strange, but it was uh, it was different for me, and it was so exciting to work with real ast- astronauts that have been to the moon. To her friends co-workers, and fellow set decorators. I am so sorry for your loss. I hope for you, remembering Michelle and hearing her voice and stories again will, will, will give you a smile and blunt the pain if 
even for a few minutes. Michelle Pulick was a very talented, fun-loving creative who left us too soon and will be missed. Let's get to this week's episode. I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design. On the show today, legendary design icon, Bonnie Williams. What are you waiting for? There's no other way to build this up. It's Bunny Williams. After eight years doing this podcast and many years prior doing interviews for Playboy, I don't get starstruck. To the contrary, actually. While hosting the Playboy radio interview for, for Playboy, I spoke with actors like Henry Winkler, bands like Dirty Heads and Drive-By Truckers, strong personalities like Tom Sizemore and Governor Jesse Ventura artists and artisans alike, and I always challenge myself to go beyond what you already know and bring you new ideas. That's not always easy. Sometimes interview guests are focused on quote-unquote talking points. They want to stick to the hits. The showroom is an interview series in partnership with Walker Zanger. We're in our second year of the series, and it has been an absolute joy working with Walker Zanger and the guests who appear on the podcast like the one you're about to hear from. The opportunity to sit down with Bunny Williams was one that meant a lot to me when booking her for the show. And now, listening back and editing our conversation, I wanted to bring you another side of Bunny Williams that you don't find in the trade publications. The work speaks for itself. So I wanted you to get to know Bunny, her firm, the history, importance on mentorship, lessons learned from Sister Parrish and Albert Hadley. I wanted you to hear about the dogs that are of such a high importance to Bunny, regularly featured in and always present in Bunny's work and her world. They make a guest appearance here, and uh, I'm keeping that in. I could go on, but I won't. This is Bunny Williams. Are you subscribing to the podcast? If not, Please do, so you get every episode automatically when they're published. You can find Convo by Design everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. And now you can find us on designnetwork.org, a destination dedicated to podcasts, all things design and architecture. So make sure to check that out. Convo by Design is presented by Walker Zanger, a fantastic company and an equally fantastic design partner. While the Walker Zanger brand was built on the promise to inspire designers and architects to do their best work, there's far more to it than that. Yes, that promise is fulfilled every day through a commitment to provide the best ceramic, glass, stone, porcelain, and concrete surfaces and finishes. But at the heart is a family-owned and operated business that provides stunning surfaces for a well-designed home and does it to make designers and architects do their best work for their clients. Walker Zanger started in 1952, and they are absolutely one of the best trade partners a designer can have. Check out their newest collaborative line with designer Pieta Donovan, a a collection of cement and ceramic tiles inspired by the patterns and colorways of the 1970s and created with a comfortable modernity. Walker Zanger is on the cutting edge of design, featuring products for every style and architectural feel you can create. And they provide homeowners with the materials that dream kitchens and baths are made of. Check out any of their 14 showrooms across the country or shop online, walkerzanger.com. It can be successful. Um, we've learned Zoom calls. Clients don't require me to come there once a week or once a month. Um, and we work with architects. I work on the plans with over Zoom calls. I used to have to go to the office. Um, I used to have to go on site visits. I was on a plane once a week. 
I think that will change. And I'm glad <laughs> it was hard work. Yeah, well, it's interesting too, because you know, in, in 2019, you were already talking about specifying online and doing research online. And now, you know, prior to last year, you had many companies who had shifted away from the, the physical catalogs entirely. And many designers and architects who had, who had stopped using physical catalogs in a library. In, in order to get everything digitally. And I'm, and I'm curious, without being able to predict a, a lockdown, did you, did, do you think you had what you needed or do you think that we now understand that we need a little bit more? I think t there are two things. You know, I have my furniture company, Bunny Williams Home. When I started Bunny Williams Home 10 years ago, I very much wanted it online from the beginning. And I wanted that because I wanted it to be accessible to people across the country who wouldn't come to a showroom. And I knew that from my own career that it's fine if you can go into a showroom, but not everybody lives in a city where there's a showroom. So Bunny Williams Home went online from the very beginning. And because of that, we survived very well during COVID. We had inventory number one, and number two, it was already geared up to be online. I think that companies that, that were ahead of the game that way really, you know, it, it, it paid off. From the interior design standpoint, for me, one of the things that I had to do is build more of my library here in Connecticut where I would be working because I wasn't going to the office. So I was a little bit behind in that. And um, I knew things I wanted. They sent me, you know, the sample books. Uh, I even got Benjamin Moore to send me the big uh, paint thing so I could see it other than a one by one little dot. And uh, so, you, you, you know, if you're changing where you work, you've got to build up your own library. Many designers who are not, you know, they have it in their homes. I mean, it's not uncommon for them to have swatch books and things like that. I just didn't have it here. So I had to put it together. And I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you about how this has affected the office, but I want to come from a, from a different perspective. You do something that is truly amazing. Your, your mentorship program. I mean, you're, you're kind of a star maker in, in design. You really are. What's interesting about that is this is an experience that this is something that you experienced as well. Uh, working absolutely. For Parrish I mean, Hadley. I, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I went to work at Parrish Hadley. I was 22 years old. Um, I was hired as a secretary. I started at the bottom. I'd had one year of a junior college with a design program. I hadn't been to design school. I wanted to go work with that firm and I was willing to take any job I could get. What was interesting about going to work with a firm like that is that you immediately knew, you were really exposed right away to what you didn't know. I mean, you might have a good color sense and have some background. I'd worked in an antique shop, but when you saw the scale of these projects, how they were put together, how they were organized, what you had to do as a designer, you had to tell the, 
the sofa you're ordering, you have to tell every detail. Do you want a welt? Do you want a gimp? Do you want a skirt? How do you want the skirt to fall? Every single thing we do as a designer has detail, has customization. And I was like, wow, this is, and you have to get it right and you have to communicate it. So it was an amazing experience. Albert, who had been a teacher at, at um, FIT, was always a teacher to us. I mean, he, we used to have to do a scheme for him to, we had to make a presentation to him. And then he would um, very kindly tell us that it was hideous or that uh, he used to say, I would bring and I'd say, oh, I have this fabulous mirror for this dining room. And he'd say, have you scaled it in? Of course I hadn't. And he knew right away it didn't fit. He could just look at it until it didn't fit. And then I would embarrassingly go draw it in on the elevation. And of course it didn't fit. And uh, that's when you learn that you've got to scale everything in. I mean, you can't be buying for a project that's 300 miles away unless you know it's gonna fit that space. And so there are these principles of things that I certainly learned and I hope to pass on to my office and people who work for me. I don't expect anybody to work for me forever, but I hope that the, what they learn from me, that they will go out and be better designers. Let's, let's look at it from the other perspective as well, because something that you said really struck me. And as, as a matter of fact, I was, I was having a conversation recently with my son, who's a senior in high school going to college. And I was, I was sharing with him something that I heard you say, and it has nothing to do with design because he's not a designer, but you, you said that one of the things that you learned working at Parrish Hadley was from Sister Parrish um, because she was such a, a, an enthusiast and fan for, for chaos and mayhem that you learned what you didn't want. You learned what you, what you didn't like and how that helped you I think I'm paraphrasing, but how it sort of helped bypass certain certain landmines that you would encounter in your career. Well, I also think that you, listen, we learn from everything. We study, we learn. A good designer is going to absorb a lot of things and put it together. I saw two very different people, their work habits, how they did it. Um, you know, somebody asked me one time, why did you stay there long? Why didn't you leave before? Because I had so many clients of my own. And I said, I was always worried about the business. I knew I could be creative, but what always worried me was paying the bills, the estimating, I mean, the business part of it. And somebody said to me, well, don't you know, there are people who like to do that? And I'm like, really? And uh, so the minute I got understood that I was able to hire a young girl um, about my age who had run a business and she came in and set up the business side of it. So I think that I, one of the things at Parish Hadley is they had this great business office. You know, everything was, there were accountants and the bills were paid and the, and I thought, well, if I leave here, I'm going to have to do all that myself. And that I'm not sure I would be so good at. So you learn Working in a firm, you learn what it takes. You learn not only the creative part, but the business part. And if you don't have the business part down pat, you're never going to have, you're never going to succeed in it. It's absolutely essential. You have to be, you have to send estimates, you have to stick to it, you have to make sure you get your deposits, 
Um, and it is a business. Yes, it's creative and it's very personal, but in the end, it's a business. And what's what's simply amazing to me about all of this as well is not just the talent that has come through your door and, and learned under your tutelage, but that you you really live you live this um, through, you know, and, and the future of the legacy of the firm and, and you and your firm. Tell me about Elizabeth. Well, I was so lucky. Elizabeth Lawrence, who is my partner now, um, came to me as an intern. She was a student at New York School of Interior Design, where last year she got the Albert Hadley uh, Award, which she greatly deserved. And her mother had said to her, uh, go intern, go. And, you know, she, they discussed interning with me, just like I wanted to work at Parrish Hadley. So Elizabeth came in as an intern. She was very bright, very energetic. I liked her immediately. I often, when the first interns come in, I don't always work with them. They go to work with one of my design teams, but I got to know them. And I saw that Elizabeth was particularly, uh, talented and had a good eye. She went back and finished school and then she came and came back and I offered her a job and she's been with me ever since. And, um, you know, it's, it's so good. The internship to me is so important because you really get to know somebody's personality. You know whether they're going to fit in. You know how they're going to be able to deal with clients. And as we all know in this business, your relationship with clients is very complicated and you have to you have to have the, enough confidence to listen to the client and to but to sell them on the ideas that you have it's a complicated relationship it's much easier to be a lawyer or a dentist because they don't second guess you but a decorator you know we get second guess all the time so how you handle the clients and how you handle the clients when they're upset you know they do get upset and how, do you have somebody who's strong enough in their own personality that they can listen and not break into tears and, um, you know, have a meltdown? Because you work it out. Um, and so Elizabeth had that personality. And I've been so lucky that she's a part of my life now. And, and, and a big part of the firm. She's, she's a partner. and uh... a partner. She now, you know, basically, I, we have new jobs coming in. She handles most of them with my, you know, I look over them. I pray, I mainly work on our old clients of which we have a number who always seem to be moving or doing something, I don't know. And um, so I, you know, we work in tandem, but, um, you know, I encourage the new clients to work more with her and not expect to see me every day. I, I bring it up too, because I think it's so important you know, many of the designers that I've, that I've spoken with over the past eight years, you know, it's really interesting for some reason, people go to design out of moments in real conflict. I, you know, in speaking to a number of designers in New York and, and surrounding who started around 9-11, um, some who started right after the financial crisis. How many people have we spoken to who said, oh yeah, I started it in 2008 or 2009. It was like, great timing. I mean, your timing was perfect, but there's something out about coming out of the fire and starting your firm. But there's also something about doing it in a, doing it smartly and doing it in a, in an intelligent way. And you have said before, you know, 
that people will go out and, and hang their own shingle and they're making all their own mistakes for the very first time. Whereas if you, if you go and you learn under the tutelage of somebody who's done it, you can avoid all of those issues. You can, it can save you because I hope, I, I often can say, no, you can't do it this way or the curtains ought to be made this way. So experience, I can help guide people through my experience. The other thing is when you work for someone else for a period of time, you learn all the workrooms and you learn clients. I mean, what was interesting when I was at Parish Hadley, often when, even if I worked on a job with Mr. Hadley, Albert or Mrs. Parish, if I did a good job, that person recommended me to their friend. So when I left Parish Hadley, I left with six big projects and they were projects that had come to me when I was in that firm. So a lot of times I think it's, if somebody's young and they hang their shingle out, you have to figure out how are you gonna get your clients? You know, what is it? Are you, do you have social connections? What, what, is the, what is going to bring clients to you? Because without clients, you're not gonna do very well. And I do think working with an established firm, you know, I know people who've worked for me have probably clients who work with them may have gone with them, but that's life. I mean, that's what happens. Um, you, you want them to succeed. So um, I think if young people are starting out, working with an established firm will introduce them to the design world, to the magazine world, to the media world, and um, it'll, be, it'll help them tremendously. Do you think that being in the age of the influencer and you know it's 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 interesting because I have I have an issue with the whole idea of of influencers, right? Because influencers, by by the very nature of what they do, they tell you what they like. You know, if you're if you're your design as a service industry, and you've you've said so yourself, you know this to be true. It's not really about what you like. I find it. I you are talking to somebody who doesn't get it. I mean, why should somebody who has learned to work the the computers, the Instagram, the whatever, decide they're the influencer. What did they do? Have they ever decorated a room? You know, are they a fashion play? I don't know. I don't quite understand it. I was talking to somebody this morning from the New York Times, and we were talking about the, the perils of things like Instagram. And, you know, so many young designers think, oh, if I go and, you know, get Pinterest or Instagram and here's the picture and then I'm going to do a mood board and this is what my client's going to get. Well, guess what? That room's already been done. Where's your creative spirit? Why, why do we have to copy something somebody else did? You know, the best thing is to go back to old sources, to go back to libraries, to look at things that aren't somebody else's decorated room and then you're gonna see things that inspire you and you're gonna end up being creative and have your own, you know, your own point of view. I mean, that's what you hire a designer for is their point of view. But now it's also digital that, you know, I look at rooms in a magazine and I think, oh, well, that's so-and-so's bedroom. Oh, I know that room that was done by Billy Baldwin in 19, blah, blah, blah. it's silly because if you're, if you understand design, you know that's really not being created. Okay, so that being said, I, I wanna, and I wrote it down cause I wanna, I wanna get it right. I wanna, yeah, there's a quote that's attributed to you and I, you've probably heard it before but I wanna make sure I get it right. 
I, I like an interior that defies labeling. I don't really want someone to walk into a room and know that I did it, which is exactly what you're saying here, but it's it's so counterintuitive to the to the to the spirit of of a rock star designer, an iconic, a legendary designer like you are. Well, what I hope, what I really hope, I mean, I take I take what I do really seriously. I think interior design and doing things, it's a very expensive process. It goes on, it takes a long time to do it. And I don't want it ever to be dated. I don't want anybody to walk in and say, oh, this was, you know, 2020. And this was every cliche of the moment. So I, I also think it would be really nice if somebody walked in a room, walked in a house and didn't ask the fir first question of who did it. I mean, can't you walk into a house and think, oh, this is a pretty house and maybe even think the client did it. I don't know. But I think that sometimes when things are so over the top, the first thing people say when they walk in is who did it? Um, you know, and I think that you can get tired of that. You can, it can become dated. It can be, you know, it can be t exhausting. And so one has to learn how to be a creative, inventive, but also tone it down. Okay, I get it. At the same time, would, would you not agree that interior design is an art form? Well, I treat it like that. I think to me, it's like painting a picture. You know, if I have an empty room, it's like a blank canvas. What am I gonna do? It's like, you know, every artist is, what's your color palette? How are you gonna put the paint on the canvas? So I think very much it's, if you're good at it, it's an art form. And there are certainly many designers who express that form in different ways. And that's, that's what makes it interesting. Um, but yes, I mean, every room to me is a big blank canvas and I've got to make my composition and I've got to put the colors and the textures of, of furniture and textiles. And it, it's so much like painting. I mean, I've painted my life. I'm, I'm not a great painter, but when you study art, you realize what goes into putting, creating a canvas. And I think we're always, we're all designers are doing that every time we start on an empty room. And I, I, I understand, I agree with you. And would it then not stand to reason that somebody would definitely want a, a Bunny Williams original? Oh, you know, clients come to you because they've liked what you do. I mean, they've seen it. They, they're, they're either a friend of a friend or they've seen it, something in a magazine. They come, you, you choose your designer because you've seen something that they, they've done that appeals to you. And if, if you don't have that, don't take them as a client. I mean, I really mean it because um, that you already have a vocabulary. So, uh, you know, and they, you know, people will say, and I always say to them, you know, I'm not gonna repeat that room, that, that house that you were in, I just don't do that. So uh, we have to, you know, make it our own. And, but I think they come to me because I'm certainly not a minimalist and I don't do a lot of white rooms. So if they want that, they're probably not gonna hire me. And if they want some, you know, very glitzy, you know, 10, 10 marbles used in the floor and the walls and the ceiling and, you know, moving light fixtures, they're probably not gonna come to me. So 
but that's fine because there's somebody else to do that better than I do. And that's how you have a good relationship with your client. I'm also curious too uh, about that. You know, when I, when I started doing the podcast, I would have designers on and I asked the question now, when I go back and listen to past episodes, it's cringy for me. It's almost embarrassing. And it, while it's not a stupid question, it's, it's definitely a pedestrian question. And I would ask, so, so what is, you know, what is your style in design or do you have any favorite styles? And again, it's completely cringy, but over the years I've learned something. It's not that there is a, predetermined or favorite style as much as there's a fingerprint of the designer. There are specific through lines that, that become intrinsic to the work that the designers do um, because it's almost like your personality. You cannot change your, you can't change your personality. And some elements, even though it's the client's wishes in, in materials and finishes, it's still your personality that's that's within the design, and I guess I'm I'm kind of leaning in a, a little heavy on that quote that you don't want people to necessarily know that it was you that did the work. I, I don't know why I find that so surprising. Well, I think that you know people say, "What is your look?" I do a lot of different jobs. I mean, I work on different houses. I have different clients. I had a wonderful lady in New York who didn't want one antique. The furniture is very contemporary. The color palette, very, very simple, uh, clean, spare. But what is the essence of every room I do is I really think what's gonna happen in this room? Where are people gonna sit? How are they gonna talk to each other? What's the floor plan? Where are they gonna watch television? What happens in every space? Where are they gonna eat? How do you maximize the use of every room in a house? And I think that, I think that underlying whether, whether the style is more contemporary or more traditional, probably the floor plan, because I like to make furniture groups. I like to make sure that when everybody sits down, there's a table for their glass of water or their glass of wine or whatever. I wanna think of their comfort. I wanna think of lighting, er everything to make it a comfortable room. So I think that probably comfort and usability is the consistent um, thing through all the projects, no matter what kind of house or what the color palette is or uh, you know, is it a country house? Is it a formal apartment? They all have a different feeling because of where they are and what the architecture is. But I try to make every room absolutely usable for the client and their lifestyle. Sometimes does that, does that butt up against uh, high style and design? No, not at all. I mean, you can have you know, you can have the most elegant, grand room and still have it be comfortable. You know, as I say, I, I tell the story of my first, I guess it was my second day at Parrish Hadley when I had to take a bag of memo samples to an apartment on Fifth Avenue. I was 22 years old. I was led up by the elevator man and rang the bell and a butler opened the door. And behind me was, behind the butler was a painting of the Picasso of the boy and the white pony. And I looked at it and I'd studied art history and I thought, I don't think that's a poster version. It's the first time I'd ever seen, you know, this extraordinary art that I'd studied in every art history class hanging in someone's apartment. 
And I went in and the butler was very sweet. The, it was the Paley's, William Bay Paley, William Paley apartment. And the butler was very sweet. And he said, would you like to see the, par the apartment? They are not here. And I went into this drawing room that was taxi cab yellow. I mean, it was this huge grand pa French paneled room with the greatest French furniture, beautiful. I mean, and there were Gauguin's hanging on the wall, Van Gogh's, I mean, you've never seen like it. And it was a comfortable room. There were big chocolate brown satin sofas with yellow batik pillows on it. And here was um, millions of dollars worth of art and furniture and it was a comfortable room. And I thought to myself, this is what I hope that someday I will learn how to do. And I guess six or seven years prior to that moment was, was basically one of, one of your first impact moments in design visiting uh, Greenbrier Resort designed by, by Dorothy Draper. And I'm curious what it was about that 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 had such an impact on you. And I'm curious if that then, how that influenced your design as you, as you became a professional. Well, I grew up in Charlottesville, Virginia and everybody in Charlottesville, Virginia, um, my mother was sort of a frustrated decorator. She had lovely taste and she loved helping her friends push furniture around. Those days people didn't kind of hire fancy decorators. Uh, probably they couldn't afford it, but they also liked to do their own houses. So there was a curtain lady who made the curtains and, um, you know, somebody who did the upholstery. So mommy was always kind of fiddling, not only with our houses, but helping her friends. And they, but the taste was, you know, there were lots of oriental rugs and English furniture and sort of subdued colors. And so I got to, I was 14 and I got taken to the Greenbrier Hotel with my parents and some friends of theirs who had been investors in the redo of the hotel. And so we walk in and there are emerald green walls with white trim, they're black background carpets, cabbage roses, shocking pink this. I mean, it was unbelievable. The colors, the excitement of it. And I was like, wow. And we got a tour because they, we got to see the presidential suite. We got to see everything. I was blown away by it. And yes, guess what? I love bright colors. I think you have to tone them down and you always I mix my bright colors with more neutral colors, but it certainly sh showed me a, a different a di you know, path to design. And that's why I think travel, going to see things, um, it's the most valuable thing that any young designer or any older designer, I still travel and I'm old and I can't wait for COVID to be over so I can go look at some more interiors and be inspired by, you know, something that I haven't seen. What do you, what do you miss most? Where's the first place you're going to go? Well, I probably, <laughs> it was funny. I had just planned, we had planned to go to Morocco and Tangier when COVID started and I had to cancel those plans. So I think I'd like to regroup and do that. Um, we like to travel with a couple of our friends. We have a couple of couples and I like to rent houses and kind of do day trips from it. Um, it's easier on us so that we're not hopping. So I try to find a wonderful house to rent and then go do day trips and come back and have a nice supper and um, it makes the travel, I think, more interesting. So that's probably the first thing we'll do. And um, then I wanna go um, 
to, I want to go back to Sweden and look at some of the Swedish houses. So that'll be on my agenda. When you travel, do you travel as designer or do you travel as someone who is just wide-eyed and ready to be a visitor? Well, I will tell you, particularly with my husband, John, um, I always plan of what I want to see, which is usually a house that I can go see. Um, but of course, I can't wait to find out where the shops are. So I'm always looking for, I mean, I remember being in, in Lisbon and I went to see the museums, of course, but I did that very quickly. So I wanted to get to the shopping area. And what's fun about that is that if you're in a town and you can find some antique shops or designer shops, they often share with you places you wouldn't know that wouldn't be on the beaten path. A great restaurant that the neighborhood restaurant they could go to or a garden that you might want to go see. So you learn a lot from people. And if you don't know anybody in the city and you go and go into a store or an antique shop or something and tell them you're a designer and start talking to them, you often learn about things that you would not necessarily find in a guidebook. Do you find that, you know, with the, with the proliferation of the, of the internet, that it's harder to find and it's harder when you're traveling, that it's harder to find things that, that, that traditional uh, locations where you might have found things before have been fairly picked clean? Oh, totally. I mean, I was in, I don't know where we were. I think we were in Sicily in this little town and we came upon this potter that was making these wonderful you know, dinner plates and stuff. And we ordered them. I still have them here. And about a year later, he was on the internet and had his own website and you could order directly from him. So yes, but on the other hand, I will say thank heavens for that because he's in a little town in Sicily that not many people go to and he wouldn't be able to survive if he didn't get orders from the internet. So it, it, it keeps people in business. It makes it harder to find something but that's okay. You put it together in your own way and you combine your Indian tablecloth with your pottery you bought in Sicily with your contemporary glasses that I sell from a local glassmaker in Connecticut and um, 100 Maine. And all of a sudden you have something that's unique because you've put it together. Well, it also creates more work, doesn't it? Because the moment something new and original winds up on the pages of, you know, El Decor or AD as a Bunny Williams design, good luck trying to source that in the future. <laughs> but you're always looking. I mean, that's our hunt. That's the fun thing is trying to, you know, trying to be curious and hear about something, but it's the way you put it together that's always gonna make it, you can always make it your own by combining, you know, you know, I put my antique blue Canton plates with Christopher Spitzmiller's modern ones and a young ceramist that made me some blue and white splatterware bowls. So it's all put together, it works, but you don't, you can't buy them all in one place. And that's sort of what's fun. So let's, let's talk about sourcing for a minute. And I, it's such a big part of, of the designer's world, sourcing and locating new things and, again, not to dwell on the past 12 months, but when you don't have any shows in the last 12 months to go see what's new out there, how, how, has, the, how has the firm adapted 
to that? And how do you how do you source new product? It's been hard in the last year, and it's certainly hard for companies that want to introduce new product. Um, I think that you um, you know you you rely you the the people that you again the people that you do business with. If we've communicated with them and said, do you have something new? What's coming out? Um, I think the development in the past year has been slower for many people. Um, the supply chain has been difficult, getting materials. It's been very hard. I'm sure all of you know that. I mean, you want a fabric and they have 10 yards and you they can't even tell you when you're gonna get the 40 yards you want. So it's been, that part's been very complicating. Um, I think that I find in the last years, I've designed some new things of my own, had a local person make them. So um, I think that, you know, this past year, I wouldn't say there have been a lot of new introductions, but I have a feeling in the next six to eight months, there'll be lots because people are, you know, building up and getting back to, um, to normal. I think it was very hard for companies to even fill the orders that they've been getting of existing product over the last year because of the supply chain, which has been very hard. In addition to the supply chain, there have been uh, material shortages, oh, yeah. which is leading to some pretty significant uh, price increases, as, as you mentioned. What's, uh, what's curious to me is how do what what is your what is your view on the next twelve to twenty four months in in design? Does it spike and then find its level again, or is it going to spike and stay there because that's the the new normal? What are you telling clients? Well, I feel right now. I mean, as I the thing that's so interesting is how much work many designers have. I've never seen so much movement in people in my life, people buying that house in Florida because they don't want to pay taxes someplace. They, because of their business, they're relocating to another city because they don't have to be where they were, the company's moving. So there's a lot of movement. Uh, this is going to last for a couple of years, I think. So it'll be interesting to see, is this momentum, you know, does that keep up? I certainly think the, su the supplies will get more normal as, you know, it depends what happens in the rest of the world, shipping. I mean, shipping is so hard. So if that, if that becomes more normal, hopefully some of the shipping prices and things will go down. But um, I think it's interesting. I think we are in a bubble right now. I think there's a lot of work. I think designers are really busy. I can't tell you four years from now, but certainly the work I have is you know, it's two years out or even three years out um, because it if somebody's building a new house, it can take that long. So it'll be interesting to see four years from now if there's as much movement. They actually might not like where they move to. So <laughs> they come back to New York. It's New York I worry about the most. Is it? Oh, yeah. But New York survives everything. It's tough now. You know, it's... Um, I go back, I'll go back Sunday and be in New York all next week. You walk down, you go up, walk up Madison Avenue and it's 70% boarded up. Mm. Um, you know, Lexington Avenue is same way. Um, the restaurants have all built these little, you know, 
outside dining uh, because the city still is, has limited uh, supply. So, you know, living and, and if the number of people don't have to come back to New York to work, if they can work at home, the population of New York City is gonna decrease and that's gonna affect stores, it's gonna affect restaurants, it's gonna affect the theater, um, and it's gonna take a while to get the tourism back. So New York's got a real, it's got a ways to go. I think it's gonna be slow. It's not gonna come back tomorrow. But what's interesting too about the, the, the state of design, and you, you mentioned this, is that people are moving. People are, you know, I, I, you know, you look back at the industrial revolution where everybody just moved to big cities and, and you've, you've got the kind of the opposite effect of what's happening now, at least here in the States, which is really interesting to me because I, I think in, in addition to people moving to different areas, because they can do what they've always done, now they can do them remotely and virtually. You also have the fact that over the past, you know, 12 months, people realized that their homes were not as functional as they right. wanted them to be. And I'm curious how you envision this blend of form and function in specifically in, in design moving forward. Well, again, I think that people, if people are, feel that they can in the future work at home, they're gonna want spaces big enough to accommodate that. I mean, it, it's many people know they've been, you know, if you have a studio apartment and you've been in that studio apartment for the last year trying to work on your computer and eat and live, it can get very close. So I think that somebody who's living in a studio apartment in New York and can work online might say, if I move up to where I'm in Connecticut for the same amount of money, I can have a house and a separate room. And maybe I'm gonna think differently about where I live. And everybody, that's going to sort itself out. Um, I mean, it so much depends what field you're in. My niece and her husband moved up to stay in our guest house because he works on a, he's a computer designer and he's online anyway. And she, she's a ceramicist. So, you know, and I've loved having them here. Thank heavens, without them, I wouldn't have gotten through my computer. I've had really good computer training, but um so I don't know, and they, they're young and they're not sure they wanna go back to New York. I mean, he can get up in the morning and bike for you know, an hour before he goes online and you know, the freedom of living in a beautiful, not urban area is kind of nice. So everybody's gonna have to, I think even for me, I've been given the opportunity to live in this house I've owned for 40 years for almost a year. Mm -hmm. I've never spent this much time here, ever. And I like it. <laughs> so, as functionally speaking, has what what issues have you had, if any, as far as you know, aside from the the technical ones and the computer ones, as as far as doing the job remotely? It's you know, it's the sourcing. I think that I find it very hard. I mean, just before I started talking to you, I was looking for something. I spent two hours trying to search some tiles I wanted and I still couldn't find them. Now, if I were in New York, I probably could have gone to the place, asked them, I can't get a hold of them. They're, you know, it's there, the shop isn't open. So, you know, even looking online, whether you're on first dibs or 
you know, in collect or, you know, any of the furniture sites, you have to spend a lot of hours trying to find, I was on there yesterday for two hours and I found one chair and one table. Well, I was bored at the end of that. I mean, I was thought I was going to jump out of the window. I was like, because, you know, there's so much ugly things that you try to zero into exactly what you're looking at, but they don't always listen to you. So, you know, it's hard. Um, I find that exhausting. So but, Josh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but Bunny, um, you know, this is Erica from Walker Zanger. Now that you're sort of in this work from home environment, are you finding yourself relying on your trusted uh, sales reps and, and industry partners? Absolutely. They have been absolutely unbelievable. And what you do, I mean, we were talking about this earlier. I, whatever I'm buying that I can't see, I talk to my sales rep. They are, I tell them what I'm working on. They've sent me samples, whether it's tiles or fabrics or rugs. I mean, I'm, I'm putting together my own sort of library here. They've been unbelievable. And we were talking about furniture. You know, I often will say to a showroom, would you please sit in that chair? I want this chair, it's in your showroom, but I want somebody to sit in it. And then you got to send me a picture because I can't really tell the scale of a chair from the printout. So you can see that this nice man is sitting in the chair and he doesn't look like he fits very well. So you know the chair is too small. And I often say, I mean, we do it on video. And I said, you've got to tell me if that, how does that chair fit, sit? Because I, I'll order it, but I just got to know it's the right scale for the bedroom I want to put it in. So there've been a lot more and you're absolutely right. The salespeople have been phenomenal, so much help. And the ones who are really skilled, know their product can help you so much. In, in just sort of dovetailing into that, can you identify what you still need that maybe you don't have now or <laughs> Uh, you can hear my dogs bark. Oh, sorry. Um, what I don't have, um, excuse me, I knew that would happen. Um, excuse me, excuse me. He didn't, what he didn't like I my have? question at all, did he? He didn't like the well, question. the dogs didn't. Um, you know, what is interesting is I feel like I still don't have here quite enough of my books and things that I need. Um, what's great is I can go online. So if I if I need something from a particular company, I can go on their website. But sometimes I like to look through some of the books. It's faster for me than, you know, going. To, so I'm if here. I'm building more of a library so I can be more productive when I'm here. Is there a happy medium between because because you know many designers don't have the benefit of of a dedicated studio at home? Um, is there a happy medium between what digital resources are being provided now, or is there a better way to provide the digital resources versus the um, the actual physical library within the home home studio? Well, I think there are certain things you need that are physical. I mean, I think you need some fabrics, you need books of, so you can feel it and you know what, uh, 
you know, what you have. I think that what's interesting is that people are going to, if they're going to be at home more, they're going to start looking, as I say, where they live. Is there a bedroom that can become the office? I think it's very important to have a place that you can get up and leave and not have your children all over it or your husband or the dogs or whatever. So you can shut the door. And I think that one needs to think of trying to carve out that space for them. Um, and, you know, then you can have a really, I mean, I have, I have wonderful design friends who have big businesses and they work from their home. They're in different cities. And I'm always envious of that. I'm like, wow. Uh, you know, I didn't need it because I was in New York, but now that I've learned to live here, I'd like to have both. Well, and I'm, and I'm curious, sort of, sort of building on that idea, you know, from the, from the Spanish flu, so many design ideas came out of that. You know, the, the use of subway tile in the home, the idea of the modern vestibule, which today could be compared to, you know, your Amazon drop zone. So many different ideas came out of that. I'm, I'm curious how you see design responding to those, which you mentioned to those specific needs now. Well, I think everybody, you know, when I work for a family and everybody needs spaces for their laptop, their computer. What's interesting, a lot of young people work on their laptops on their laps. I happen to like mine on a table. I mean, I can... I can watch a movie in my lap, but I can't type and do what I have. So we are thinking of who, whose office, her office, his office, are the kids at home, where they're going to work. So a lot of times, you know, in the dining room, instead of just having a big formal dining room, there's a table off to the side. There's another table that can serve as a workstation. So I do think we're all realizing that we're, we're going to be on our computers at home much more than we might've been in the future. And totally agree. Just sort of a couple of scattershot questions for you, some complete non sequiturs, uh, sort of wrapping this up that I'm, that I'm curious about. Specifically, you know, I wanna start with the dogs. Dogs have been such a big part of your life. And, you know, now it's almost acceptable it is acceptable, really. You're having a meeting and the dogs bark. It's like, hey, you know, I'm at home. I mean, look, they live here too. But but as far as dogs, it, dogs have always been such a big part of your life. And, you know, you've, ha you've had a Norfolk. I've had a Norfolk. Wonderful dogs. It just, just sort of what is, what, is, what is it about dogs? You know, John and his whippets. What is it about the dogs that is, has been so impactful for you? Well, I grew up, my father raised beagles. So I grew up with dogs. I always had dogs. Um, and then when I came to New York and actually went to work for Mrs. Parrish, who had these kind of nasty Pekingese, and she, of course, I couldn't take my dog to the office and I couldn't afford to have a babysitter for the dog. So years went by where I didn't have a dog. And the minute I left Parrish Hadley, the first thing I did was to get my first Norfolk Terrier. Um, and John has always had his whippets and he could take them to the shop. When I first met, went in John's shop, I was, I opened the door and I went, because there was a big pillow and about four whippets all sound asleep, beautifully draped on this cushion in the, in the antique store. So the antique shop was always filled with dogs. Um, I, you know, what I really love about dogs, dog, my, one of my favorite dog stories is one of my very best clients, a person who I've done a number of houses and I still work with them. He didn't like dogs. 
And it was his only flaw. I can tell you, I loved his wife. I loved his family, but he didn't like dogs. So I used to have to leave Brewster, my Norfolk Terrier in the car when I stopped with a site visit in Connecticut, make sure the windows were rolled down and there was plenty of water. And one day he came home years later and his wife met him at the door and said, she had his favorite drink and she, he looked at her and his, the children had grown and left home. And he, he looked at her and he said, I know you're not pregnant. You must have gotten a dog. And she had, she had gone and adopted the mangiest dog from a shelter you've ever seen. And let me tell you, this man is the best dog owner I've ever met. He was taken over and loved this dog, loves other dogs. It's just hysterical. And I always remember when I couldn't allow my dog out of the car. Dogs, you're either a dog person or you're not. Um, you know, I always love terriers because I think they're they're big little dogs. They're the, they think they're 500 pounds and they're about 15. Um, I now have rescues um, to John's horror because he always had these beautiful purebred dogs. And my I have a terrier mix and a, a little white fluffy thing that is supposed to be a terrier, but I don't know what she is. Um, but we love them. And I got into wanting to rescue dogs because if, if I wanted a Norfolk Terrier, I'd have to wait two years and pay a fortune. And I thought, you know, so I've now had about five rescue dogs, which I've loved. And I just can't imagine my life without them. Well, and it's interesting too, because I think you, one of the things that I, that I, I really admire most about you is your definitive nature. And, you know, you've said things before, like with regard to your clients and friendships with your clients. And I think this is important, which is, which is why I'm really bringing it up here. Your goal is not to become friends with, with all of your clients. It is a very distinct work relationship, which I think many designers get, new designers get, get trapped in this. They, they desire for that friendship to come along with, with the work because they feel it's necessary for the relationship. So they're taking texts at 10 o'clock midnight. They're, talk, they're you know, talking business Saturdays, Sundays. But you're, you're very clear in the ideas that work is work, friends are friends. What's interesting though, is I'm very clear about that in the beginning, because I think it that it comes back to this is a business relationship. When you work with people over and over again, they become dear friends and you become dear friends to them, not because you're a part of their social set or you going to the house for dinner, but you have an intimacy because you know their life, you know how they get along, you know everything about them. And decorating is you cannot hide anything from a decorator in the end if you're working with them over and over again. And so you, you have a friendship that's almost deeper than the kind of social friendship where you see people at a party or a dinner. You have an intimate relationship with your clients. And if you can do that, they will be your client forever. But I think you always have to start it out of what the boundaries are. Um, and, and even, you know, when I go and have a dinner with my wonderful clients, it's just the two of them and John and me, and it's not a dinner. It's not, I don't want to feel that I have to be at every party they give or, you know, I'll go to children's weddings or something, but you're not, you're not a part of their social life. I have my own social life. 
I have my own friends. So I think you have to be clear, unless you wanna be a part of it, how that works. And, and I like to set the boundaries in the beginning. And then later, as you really get to know somebody, you, you have a deeper friendship. Yeah, and I, and I love that. Um, and unfortunately, we, we are at the, the end of our time. And Bunny, I, I, I cannot thank you enough for doing this. It has been an absolute joy. Before I let you go though, I just want to remind everyone that this is the showroom uh, for Convo by Design presented by Walker Zanger, for whom I am so grateful for their friendship and support. Um, and I would encourage you that uh, if you're not already working with them, you you should be because they They're are- fantastic, women. beautiful, beautiful things, beautiful. Bunny, I am eternally grateful. It was so wonderful seeing you again. Thank you for the time. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm sorry the dogs start, started to bark, but at least you know I have them. <laughs> I consider it an honor. I love that they wanted to be on the show. Yes, thank you. Thank you. And thank you everyone for coming and being a part of it. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Bunny. This was an honor and a joy. Thank you, Walker Zanger, for being such a wonderful partner and being an important part of the showroom. Thank you, Thermosol, for your support and your partnership. And thank you for listening, subscribing to the podcast, and the constant support, text and emails. Make sure you stay close now because we're very close to getting back to live events. And I'm looking forward to seeing your smiling faces in person again very soon. And until then, be well and remember to take today first. Mm-hmm.